here at Christ the King Church, we're building up God's people by the ordinary means of grace. We're rooting our Christian practices in the historic Reformed faith. We're preparing our covenant children in the Lord to be the continuing church. And part of the Reformed tradition is believing that not only is the preaching of God's word a means of grace, but so is the public reading of it. So therefore, if you wonder why I often pray before we even read the scriptures, that's why. But before I even get to prayer, I want to bring your attention to the odd or unusual way that I'm going about preaching this sermon. If you're newer with us, you'll know, you know, well, maybe you don't know yet, uh, this is not the normal way that I go through a passage, okay? So if you listen to the, the previous, like, six or seven sermons, that's your, your pastor's brain. And this sermon is your pastor's brain after GA, after Summer Palooza, with a, a newborn and two small boys in the house, okay? So <laughs> it's, just, it's just a little bit different. Uh, there's, I'm basically going to teach this text first, and then I'm going to preach it. I'm going I'm to give you a thesis about uh, when I think historically these events that Jesus is describing take place. I'm going to try to defend that thesis, uh, and then I'm going to kind of transition into preaching it so that we can apply these things in, in a Christ-centered way for our lives today as Christians. Okay, I think, I think both of those will edify you and exhort you and and inform you, but I just wanted to bring that to your attention so you're, you're not thinking 25 minutes in the sermon, he's made no applications, and I don't know how to apply this to my life. Okay, all right, so let me pray for us, and then we'll read these scriptures. Father, we come in the name of Christ this morning to ask for the help of the Holy Spirit as we open the scriptures. Oh Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens forever. Your faithfulness endures from one generation to the next. You have established the earth, and it stands fast by your appointment. They stand to this day, for all things are your servants. Without your law, your people would surely perish in affliction. Your law shows us our sins and drives us to Christ. May we never forget your precepts, for by them you have given us life. We are yours. Save us, for we have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy your people, but we consider your testimonies. We have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandments are exceedingly broad. May the gospel go forth this morning, Lord, and may your grace in these verses be evident. Amen. Our Old Testament passage for the morning is Isaiah chapter 13, and we're just going to read verses 6 through 13. And then we'll turn over to Mark 13 and finish that chapter, okay? So stand with me now for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, and may God bless the reading and hearing of his holy scriptures. Isaiah 13, starting in verse 6, Wail for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another, their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Now we turn to Mark chapter 13, picking up 
in verse 24 where we left off last week. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You can be seated. As we've previously stated in other sermons, There are different opinions about this discourse known as the Olivet Discourse. Most people agree that Jesus is untangling two issues regarding time. The time of the temple's destruction and the time of his return, physically speaking, at the end of the age. The debate, the disagreement begins when we try to establish where exactly in this discourse does Jesus stop talking about the temple and its destruction And where does he begin discussing his second physical coming, right? The second advent at the end of the age. So here's some different views. One view is that verses 5 through 23 is talking about the temple, and then everything after that is the second coming. You can find that, I believe, in William Lane. Uh, I could be mistaken. The second view is similar. It's that verses 5 through 23 is the temple, And then he transitions in verses 24 through 27 to the second coming. And after that, he circles back to the temple in verses 28 through 31, and then back to the second coming in verses 32 through 37. The third view, which is my view, is this is from verse 5 through 31, temple talk. He's talking about the destruction of the temple at the hands of the Roman Empire in verses 5 through 31. In the first century, 5 through 31. Those are the verses covering the first century stuff. And then he transitions, and in verse 32 through 37, he's talking about the end of the age. That's the view that's going to be defended this morning. Okay. And then there's another view, which is verses 5 through 37. It's all one thing. It's all AD 70. It's all coming to pass in the first century. So that at no point in Mark's gospel in chapter 13 does he really transition to talk about uh, does he talk about uh, the coming, uh, second coming at the end of the age? Okay, so here's my thesis in summary. Jesus finishes answering the question about the temple in verse 31. And he transitions 
to talk about the, his second coming in verse 32. That, he moves on to answer that question about the end of the age, which remember, in their Jewish minds, in the minds of his disciples, who frequently do not understand his teaching at first blush, they thought the end of the temple meant the end of the entire world, right? The entire, the end of entire hum, hum, humanity, humanity's history, okay? And he's untangling that for them, right? So here's the defense of my, my thesis, okay? In three sections, we're going to walk through these things. The first section is the paragraph about the coming of the Son of Man in verses 24 through 27, which opens with a three-letter word, but. And every time you see the word but in the New Testament in English, it doesn't always have the same Greek word behind it. There are more than one Greek words that can be translated as this English conjunction that we're also familiar with. This is, uh, this is the first Greek conjunction that I actually learned about from my grandfather before I even went to seminary. I would sit on Thursday afternoons. It was set up Tuesdays with Maury. It was Thursdays with Grandpa, and he would teach me Koine Greek. This means quite to the contrary. It's a very, very strong transition. It's a very, very strong uh, conjunction, okay? Quite to the contrary of what these, this is what Jesus is saying, quite to the contrary of what these false Christs and false prophets that I've just told you about in these previous verses, quite to the contrary of them standing there and saying, here I am. The real McCoy is not coming back like this. This is what he's saying. Quite to the contrary of them saying, here I am, it's all going to be okay, the Christ is in your midst, that's not what's happening. The Son of Man is going to come in judgment, but not in physical form. That's, I do not believe that when he's describing the coming of the Son of Man here, that he's talking about his physical coming in judgment. Okay? So quite to the contrary, in this very subversive, deceitful way that these false Christs and false prophets are operating, the Son of Man, the real McCoy, is going to be operating like this. Okay. Second phrase I want to bring to your attention in verse 24. In those days after the tribulation. I believe that when you see the phrase in those days in Mark 13, whether it's in the verses earlier or here, he's talking about the same time frame. I alluded to this last week. When he's talking about stuff happening in the first century, he uses the phrase in those days. And then when he talks about the second coming, his physical second advent, he uses a different phrase or word that we'll get to here in a moment. Some people read this in verse 24 as him saying, yes, in the days at his second coming. This is, this is a different in those days. It's much, much later. Here's the problem with that thesis. When you look at Matthew's gospel, he inserts a very, very important word into this very verse. It's the word that you're so familiar with from the gospel of Mark immediately, which means that there is not a gap between the events of 23 and the events of 24. It's happening like this. Remember, Mark constantly is skipping stuff to get to the next piece of action. So to let you know he's not skipping stuff in his story, he uses the word immediately. To let you know, this, this really is exactly what happened next. So for some reason, Mark doesn't use his favorite word here, but Matthew does. So we know that the coming of the Son of Man is immediately following what was described in last week's sermon. So you have two choices here. Either what's happening in verses 24 through 27 happened in the first century, or the stuff that we've previously covered did not happen in the first century, because it's all in those days, and these things here this, that we're covering this morning immediately follow what happened last week. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with that? Because this isn't the only place where there's the Olivet Discourse. 
And, and we can you know, cross-reference the various gospel accounts of this discourse to understand what's going on. Third thing I want you to see in this paragraph is the sky is falling language. People read the coming of the Son of Man, the lights, uh, being, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven, the powers and heavens being shaken. And they're like, this is into the world stuff. The cosmos are collapsing. This must be Jesus' physical return to set up final judgment. But here's the problem with that. It ignores the entire uh, Old Testament. It ignores the prophecies of minor and major prophets in the Old Testament. You see sky is falling language all the time in the Old Testament when, when the Lord is talking about judgment, temporal judgment in time that he's bringing upon specific nations. Right? The Old Testament uses this kind of language in oracles of doom to bring judgment. It doesn't bring about the end of the world. The Bible will often use end of the world, end of the cosmos kind of language to describe just how bad the judgment's going to be. Does that make sense? It's hyperbole, right? We see this in Joel chapter 2. We see this in Amos chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. That was almost, it was this close to being the Old Testament reading for today. We see it in Ezekiel chapter 32. We see it as we, as we just did in Isaiah 13. We also see it in Isaiah 34. R.T. France in his commentary says, Cosmic language conveys a powerful symbolism of political change within world history. It's not a literal collapse of the universe. Okay? So th this is a common way that prophets, and, and that's what Jesus is doing here, speaking as the final prophet. He's using cosmic ending language to describe the severe judgment that's coming upon Israel. There is a political change happening. There's a new sheriff and a new, a new covenant people in town. Israel's being replaced. Israel is, is passing away. And the true Israel, the church, the fulfillment of what Israel ought to be, Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. And here, the new Israel and his people are taking the place of this Israel that's passing away. The next phrase I want you to see in this chapter is this, the coming down of God language. Everybody, everybody reads, or not everybody, but a lot of people read the, the Son of Man coming in the clouds, the great power and glory. They're like, look, the Lord Jesus is coming back. He's coming down. This must be talking in a physical sense. There is the coming down of God in judgment language all over the Old Testament. You see this very clearly in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, don't you? God has an intra-Trinitarian dialogue. See what they're doing down there? Let us go down there and confuse their languages. That's what it says. And God, in, in a non-physical, non-incarnate you know, sense, goes down and confuses their language. You see this in Job 38 through 41. God comes down in the midst of Job and his knuckle-headed friends in a whirlwind, and he speaks out of that whirlwind. I actually think that a proper translation of Genesis 3, 8 uh, describes God coming down in a whirlwind of judgment in the garden. I don't think he was just casually strolling in the cool of the day. I think it's better to understand that, you know, Adam and Eve done messed up. Judgment has come. Okay? Psalm 144, David requests that the Lord would come down and strike against his enemies. See similar language in Isaiah 64. Micah 1, verse 3. The coming down of God into the presence of the world to bring judgment. So it's not that odd. I, don't, I think what's happening here is not a description of the second physical coming of God. But rather, it's, it's making it clear, the Son of Man is the Lord. The Son of Man is divine. And the Lord is coming in judgment. R.T. France, once again, is, is helpful 
Jesus himself, and derivatively the church, he says, is now to be understood as the true Israel, the people of God, who carry out God's earthly agenda. There's a new people on the earth that are carrying the mission of God forward. And it's no longer this geopolitical nation known as Israel. It's this international kingdom known as the church of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here. And when you see in, the, in these verses, in verse 26, the they, the they will see the coming of the Son of Man, that's talking about Israel. That's, that's talking about the stars, the moon here, right? Meaning the political power that's being brought under judgment. They will see this happen, okay? So that's paragraph one. Now we're moving to paragraph two, the lesson from the fig tree. Or, as some English translations put it, the parable of the fig tree, I do think the, the Greek word translated as parable is found in these uh, words. I could be misremembering that. But th- this, there's no hidden meaning here. It's really more just like a lesson. Jesus is saying, look, you know that summer is coming by looking at the fig tree. The fig tree has a common way of growing and producing leaves and then later fruit throughout the year. So when you look up and the fig tree is doing this, you know that this season is coming. Right? This event that Jesus is describing is predictable. There's visible signs letting you know that it's coming. And that's what you see in these verses from 28 to 31. Observable, knowable markers of time. In verse 28, it's subtle but clear. Verse 29, it's crystal clear. You see this? You see this stuff happening? Well, then you know that these things are going to happen. You see this? You know that. You see? You know. Right? This concept, as we'll get to in a minute, it changes in the following section. The passage goes from talking about, hey, you're going, to have, you're going to be able to know. You're going to see these signs, and you're going to know. And then it transitions to, you don't know. Nobody knows. Okay? Now, here's one of the most important uh, points, is in verse 30. I'm going to reread it. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The question is, what does the word generation mean? I think the ESV and the New American Standard and other English translations that use the word generation are are choosing the correct word here. Uh, It it can be argued that this word could mean um, race or a kind of person, an ethnicity, but I think the better translation is generation, meaning, as BDAG puts it, as that, as that dictionary puts it, the sum total of those born at the same time expanded to include all those living at a given time. Okay? When we talk about Generation X or Generation Z right, or Millennials, that's the, the proper understanding of the word generation here. As Bruce Gore put it, he got his master's in the classics. He's been teaching uh, Sunday school out on the West Coast for many, many years, and he describes the, the inclination of some to translate this as ethnicity or race. And he, and he draws out the point that the, there is a word, a similar Greek word that is to be translated that way. And both of these two different Greek words share the same Greek verb. They're both a product of that, uh, that Greek word, meaning to become or to be, but they're not the same. And the more natural reading in this context of this word is generation. In other words, let me just make this very clear. Jesus is talking about contemporaries. Jesus is not talking vaguely about some far-off people or some race of people. By the way, the idea that Jesus is talking about the Jewish race, where in the Bible do you see that God will say that these people will ever pass away? 
In fact, if you read the book of Romans, Paul makes it very clear that God's plan is to graft many of them back in. This whole, they're going to pass away business is nonsense. It's a natural reading that he's talking about a generation. This is the opinion of Calvin, of Kenneth Gentry, of R.T. France. It's the natural reading of the word generation. And a generation in their Jewish context was about 40 years. So here Jesus is in early 30s A.D. saying this generation won't pass away until all this comes to pass. Well, early 30, 31, 32 A.D. plus 40-ish years is what year? Yeah, around 70 A.D. So there's a, a, a plain reading of this word generation, and that prediction, that prophecy is completely accurate if you understand Jesus to be talking about the destruction of the temple, the, conquer, the conquest of, of Jerusalem, Israel at the hands of of Rome, okay? Third paragraph, describing the return of a master who's left on a journey. There's a really important phrase here, but concerning. You see that in your English? Look at verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour. Do you see that? But concerning is from the English, or excuse me, the Greek phrase para day. And used at the beginning of a paragraph, that Greek phrase signals a change of subject. Paul does it all the time. You see this in 1 Corinthians. Corinth was messed up. They had lots of questions. Some questions they probably weren't asking, but they should have been, right? So this is what Paul does in 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, but concerning marriage. Chapter 7, verse 25, but concerning betrothed people. Chapter 8, verse 1, but concerning food offered to idols. Chapter 12, but concerning spiritual gifts. Chapter 16, but concerning the collection for the saints. This is how Paul leaves a subject behind, picks up a new subject, and begins to answer that question. What is Jesus doing in this passage? He's answering, he's untangling one question and showing that there's two different issues. I believe, based on the Greek of this text, not just this one phrase, but all the others we've already mentioned, that Jesus is clearly setting down the topic of the destruction of the temple and picking up now, in verse 32, his second physical coming. Does that make sense? This is a common way that Greek writers and speakers would say, we're done covering that. Now let's move on. Okay? So, important word. You even see Paul do this, I think, in 1 Thessalonians a couple times. Now, here's a really concerning phrase. I'm sure it bothered all of you as soon as I read it. Jesus says, here's the deal, gang. The angels in heaven don't know. You don't know. And not even the sun knows, right? And everybody wearing pearls in here immediately starts clutching them. What is Jesus talking about, right? There's two different answers to this question that I think are good. Well, let me phrase that. One of them is okay. One of them is much better. What does it mean that the sun doesn't know? Kenneth Gentry in his book on the Olivet Discourse, amazing little book, but I have to quibble with him on this. He believes that in Jesus' estate of humiliation, the son, Jesus, did not know. I disagree with that. Uh, I think that people that believe in the idea of kenosis, which was their reading of Philippians 2, which is that when Jesus emptied himself, they believe that Jesus emptied himself completely of, of his divinity. I think that, that, uh, that Gentry's explanation flings the door wide open for them to, to grab it and run with it. I think there's a much simpler answer. I was at an Irish pub during General Assembly, and I nudged one of my buddies who's uh, he's, he's about to get his doctorate from Puritan Reformed, and I said, I know what I think about this, but what do you think about this? And then he gave me his answer. I'm like, okay, good, I'm on the same page. And then I got a free book at GA by R.C. Sproul called Hard Sayings. 
right? He takes all these challenging things that you read in the Bible, and he explains them in, in like, you know, just three or four pages. And this is his view. So me and a guy who's almost a professor and R.C. Sproul, here's our view, that Jesus is speaking according to his humanity. Notice who's not mentioned in this list of people that either know or don't know. It's the Holy Spirit. Here's what you need to understand. In, in classic theism, in proper, uh, you know, doctrine of God theology, right, we understand that Jesus, according to his divinity, shares one divine mind with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. So if the Father knows, the Holy Spirit knows. And if the Father knows, the Son, according to his divinity, knows. I think what Jesus is saying here is the second Adam, the pinnacle of humanity, doesn't know. So here's an implication for us. When some guy who's been exegeting the Bible by himself with a dictionary in his basement says, I know, I figured it out. This is when he's coming back. Don't believe him. Because the second Adam, according to his humanity, the chief of humanity, said, I don't know. I don't know. And therefore, I think it's one of the highest forms of academic arrogance for someone to say, I've read the Bible enough, and I've figured out exactly when Jesus is returning. Fascinating. Because Jesus said he doesn't know, according to his humanity. Okay? So I know that's a concerning phrase, but we have to remember that there are times throughout the Bible in which Jesus and, and the author, other authors of the New Testament, or rather other speakers in the New Testament, are talking about Jesus sometimes just according to his divinity, and sometimes they're talking about him just according to his humanity. That emptying, as we've talked about before, of, of himself in Philippians was not by subtraction, but rather by the addition of humanity. Okay? Now, here's the most interesting change. I've already covered this, but let me just restate it. What I just said is that no one knows. Did you catch the transition? Did you catch the transition both in how Jesus is talking about time and about, about knowing stuff? Look at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour. So he leaves behind the phrase, in those days. Because he's, talk, he's done talking about that time period. And now he's using the phrase, that day or that hour. So that's a transition from one time frame reference to another. And he goes from describing things that you can know and how you can know them to things that nobody knows. Now let's make application of the text. I'm done defending that thesis. I'm done teaching you this text. Now I want to preach it to you. Okay. Here's the fallen condition experienced by these men, by the early church and by the church today that's described in all these verses. We're like sheep scattered about. The things we look to in the world are unstable and temporal, and our master has gone on a journey, leaving us in the house together. <laughs> That's our condition, and it comes with problems. But here's the good news. Here's the big idea. In the midst of turmoil, the kingship of Jesus is a comfort to the church. I think the kingship of Christ is on display in three major ways in this passage. The king gathers his people, the king guarantees his word, and the king gives us assignments. Let's look at Jesus gathering his people in verse 27. This passage tells us that Jesus, he, will send out the angels, Greek word there is messengers, and gather his elect from the four winds. What kind of people is he gathering? Elect people, scattered people. Elect people, you cannot get away. As much as Southern evangelicals, most of them would love to get away from this word, they can't. Election is all over the Bible. 
And that's who Jesus is getting from, it's scattered from the four winds. Whenever there's judgment, there's a scattering. All throughout the Bible, when you see it, Tower of Babel, and after that, every time there's judgment, the people scatter. But every time there's a scattering, God is faithful to do a gathering. The story of humanity does not end with scattering. It ends with a gathering. All people being gathered to Christ to worship him. What's interesting about this passage is that Jesus uses two different phrases that mean everywhere. He's gathering his elect from the four winds, meaning from everywhere, from all over, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, once again, meaning everywhere. Where is he gathering his people from? Where is he finding worshipers who will be redeemed, who will be called by his name? Everywhere, everywhere. There is not one square inch of this globe that will not hear the gospel and bow the knee to Christ. How is he doing it? Messengers. ESV and other English translations, I think the, the pre- predominant translation of this Greek word that can mean messengers is angels. So which one is it? Is he talking about like human messengers? Like the apostles, the evangelists, missionaries, and average Joe Christians who just share the gospel with people that they meet? Or is he talking about angels? It's interesting. R.T. France starts thinking out loud in his commentary about this. And he, he, he talks about how he used to think, no, it's got to be human messengers. And then he talked about his transition of, of coming to believe that's not necessarily uh, the case. You don't necessarily have to hold that view. And he points to other passages of Scripture that talk about how the angels are participating in this mission. Hebrews 1.14, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So just, I want you to understand this, church, as, you've been, as we've all been given the Great Commission. The Holy Spirit indwells us, and it's the activity of the Holy Spirit when you read the Scriptures to gather God's people. That's the business that the Holy Spirit's about. And as we're sent out on this mission, as we, as we go, as we share the gospel, as we teach disciples to obey what Jesus has commanded, the angels of heaven are about this business too. So take comfort. Here's two applications of this, of, of the fact that Jesus is gathering his people. One, give. Support the missional evangelistic work of the church so that we might fulfill the Great Commission. Two, gather. Be gathered. Right? You're a gathered people, yes, but what about second gathering? Right? He doesn't just gather you to save you. The activity of the Holy Spirit, as we see particularly, I think, in Isaiah 34, is that over and over again, the Holy Spirit gathers God's people together so that they might worship the Lord corporately with one another. If you say that you've been gathered, you've been saved by Jesus, but you constantly neglect gathering with saints to worship the Lord, you are not fulfilling your purpose as the gathered elect of God. Second thing I want us to understand about King Jesus here is the king guarantees his word. You probably note in this passage that the reality of passing things and the everlasting nature of his word. What do we say after every reading of the main text for a sermon? The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. We're acknowledging every time we read scripture in the pulpit. All of these things are passing away, but one thing will not. That's the enduring, eternal, everlasting word of God. When we preach through Ecclesiastes starting in the fall, 
the whole book is essentially about the vapor of vapors, the futility of futilities of, of, of the passing world around us. The book ends with this, fear God and keep his commandments. Why is that so important? After preaching an entire book about the futility of futilities, why would he say fear God and keep his commandments? Because God is eternal and his word is forever. All these other things, they're good things, but they're like a mist that vanishes at dawn. So fear God and keep his word. This is what we're being essentially exhorted to by Jesus here. We're being exhorted to do two things, to loosen and to look. Loosen our grip on the passing things of the world and strengthen our grasp on the word because it will never pass away. Loosen. Loosen your grip on the things that are fading. And look. Look to the scriptures. Look to the scriptures as your highest authority for living, trusting that the word of Christ is still true. The opinions of man, the wisdom of the earth, the philosophy of the day, the spirit of the age, they change, they ebb, they flow. His word is steadfast and short. Something that Leslie and I have, uh, have lamented. We realize we're getting old because things that, that were cool when we were like 12 and 13 are back in again. Right? And we're on one hand, we're appalled that we're aging so quickly. On the other hand, we're like, that wasn't really cool when we were doing it. Why are they doing it again? Kids, listen, the, the, the newest, latest, greatest fad or thing, in like six years, you'll be embarrassed that you thought that was so great. You'll be embarrassed that you clung to that thing and cherished it so much. But you will never regret, you will never be embarrassed 10 years from now that the younger version of yourself clung to the word of God. You'll never look back and say, Boy, I can't believe I read and underlined so much in my Bible. I can't believe I read it so much the cover fell off twice before I graduated high school. Cling to his word. Loosen your grip on other things and look to the scriptures. The third thing I want you to see about King Jesus in this passage is that the king gives us assignments. One of the popular phrases these days is he or she understood the assignment. It's important for people in the church to understand that Jesus has given us assignments. And there's two words that can be used. They, they alliterate, of course, because we're preaching here. Uh, to describe the, the jobs, the assignments that the church has given here. Doulos and doorman. It's the Greek word for slave or bond, more accurate, I think, bond slave. Why English versions constantly translated as servant, I can only guess. But it's a much stronger word than servant. If Jesus wanted to say servant here... He would have used the Greek word diakonos from where we get the technical ecclesial term deacon. He refers to magistrates in Romans 13 as diakonos, as, as servants of God. When he uses the word diakonos, when authors use the word diakonos, they're showing you the honor of the position. But when they use the word doulos, they're calling you to humility. So the fact that we are slaves in the master's house, bond slaves in the house of Christ, should call us to humility. He's put us in charge. He's entrusted us with his work. And some of us are like doorkeepers. That's a position uh, described here, the doorkeeper, or in some translations it might say gatekeeper. R.T. France calls them a porter. And then he shows what the porter's verb is, and it's actually where we get the name Gregory from. It's the Greek word to watch, Gregory. 
This is important. We're to be watchful. This is what we just did at General Assembly. Elders gathered into an assembly hall. Yes, we peruse the exhibit and the free stuff first. That's why you have so many great new pens over there. But the main task of the week is to gatekeep, to doorkeep, to oversee who and what is coming in and out of the house of God. Our denomination was formed because many men, after literally 30 or 40 years of seeing it it coming and trying to, to reform the old denomination, the old church, they realized the doorkeepers are awake, but they're willfully rebelling against the wishes of the master. We need to leave. We are all called here to be watchful. These positions may not be attractive. To be a, a servant, a, sl- a slave, and to be a doorman. But note the house that these positions belong to. As the psalmist tells us, better is one day in the house of God than a thousand elsewhere. Church, it is better for one day to be a slave and a doorman in the house of God than it is to be a king somewhere off in the dominion of darkness. So here's some applications for us from this passage. And it alliterates, of course, stay frosty and stay faithful. Meaning be awake and stay awake. Did you catch how many times he reiterates that point over and over again in this last paragraph? Be on guard. Keep awake because you don't know when the master is going to return. Stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. I mean, over and over again, it closes the section. I say to all, stay awake. So not just the doorkeeper. The porter of the house isn't the only one who has to stay awake. Everybody's got to stay awake. Everybody has to stay alert. And you know what the smelling salts is that will keep you wide awake? You know what that stiff cup of coffee is that will keep you awake and awake? It's right here. Knowing and obeying the word of God. Being a part of a fellowship of, of the saints to keep each other awake. Ever, you know, I drove to GA with Casey, and I drove back with Casey, and we took shifts. And on those long drives, without a really strong cup of coffee or Red Bull, it can be, my, my eyes can get heavy. But when you've got someone next to you to talk to you, right, to engage with you in conversation, to take a shift behind the wheel, there's no falling asleep. Not, not, I mean, not for me, at least, maybe for you. I'm not saying, you know, if you need coffee, even though you're riding with people, go ahead and get that cup of coffee. But you get what I'm saying. It's the importance of fellowship, the importance of being in community. So stay awake. Stay faithful. Know your role and do it. Know your role in your home and in the church and faithfully fulfill them. Some will be teaching elders. Some will be ruling elders. Some will be deacons. Most will be faithful congregants. So know your role and fulfill your role. Why? Well, because as this text makes very clear, the Lord comes down in judgment throughout history, doesn't he? And one day he will physically return to bring about the end of history and begin eternity with his people forever and ever. The reality of his coming again should motivate us as Christians to faithfulness, not in some sort of scared fear of him, but rather in an awe-inspired fervor for his kingdom. We should be motivated as Christians in gladness and in joy and thanksgiving because we were once rebels who've now become bond slaves, and not just bond slaves, but adopted sons of God in Christ our Lord. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray.